Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 72 of the Simple Life Podcast. Another week has passed. It is getting warmer. It is getting brighter. I cannot wait for spring and summer to be here so we can all get outside and get enjoying uh, our gardens, both uh, legal ones and illegal ones. You know what I'm talking about, you fine folk out there. It is almost a gorilla growing season. Uh, and I suppose that's quite a good segue onto uh, <laughs> our, our guest today, uh, somewhat of a, a growing aficionado that has quite recently been entangled with uh, local constabulary uh, for cultivating his own and producing sort of his own oils, tinctures, and and um, general sort of products. He is a former MOD contractor, a cannabis activist that has worked with many UK cannabis law reform organizations, including Teesside Cannabis Club, Durham City Cannabis Club, uh, Seed Our Future, Bud Buddies, and others. Um, he was recently, unfortunately, convicted for, as I said, cultivating his own cannabis despite his best efforts, his knowledge, and uh, experience. So we've invited him on today to discuss this. He is Mr. Trev Coleman. How are you doing, brother? Not so bad, young and how's yourself? I am good. I am good. Like I said, it's it's getting brighter. It's getting warmer. Um, I was out in just yeah, I was out in just one. Indeed, indeed. Past couple of days, I think we've nearly touched uh, double figures as well, which uh, for the north at this time of year is yeah a rarity. Some years, other years, we've actually had uh, heat waves in in March, uh, but it doesn't look like we're going to have one this year. No, it's a a proper spring day out there. It's quite nice. I'm, I'm quite happy with this. Yeah, I'm happy with it. Like I say, uh, I've seen before in the intro with gorilla growing season, everyone's sort of popping and prepping. Um, I've seen a few of the pages that I follow online, um, getting their their plants ready indoors. And I just I love this this time of year for watching everything grow, not just just cannabis, obviously, um, yeah. but just watching the colours, watching the change. It's it's something in, intrinsic into the spirit. Just lightens up. Do you know what I mean? You just get that um, inside. I'll, I'll just stand out the back there. Look, I'm noticing that my chives were coming up again, and thinking I need to get some more out there. My parsley's all blooming and. Yeah, I need to get out and get some get some new herbs on the go. For sure, for sure. Obviously, you're, uh, like I said, quite an aficionado. I would say of cultivating herbs. Um, <laughs> th- th- this quite recently got you into uh, into some trouble. So, do you want to tell us a bit about it? It is um, right. Last January, four guys decided that they want to try to break into the house at a time when I was pretty much crippled with uh, quite a serious spinal issue at the time. And me being a daft sod panicked and ended up calling the police. And the police, instead of going after the four little scrotes that were trying to break into the house, decided that they were going to bust me. So they busted us for growing 75 plants and I've recently gone through the whole process. And... Um, to be honest, I mean, it, it has really, really shocked us because we, we all think that if we commit a crime, then we're going to get a fair trial. We can put in counter evidence. We can counter the claims of the Crown and all the rest of it, but that system doesn't work that way. You don't, you don't get a fair trial. It's absolutely disgusting. I mean, it just... Uh, I, uh, <laughs> with Cedar Future... What we did was we had, uh, we had sent FOIs in, Freedom of Information requests, to every single force in the country asking three questions. We wanted evidence for the sh- um, claim that cannabis meets uh, the criteria for a Schedule One substance. We also wanted evidence for the claim of control and evidence for what misuse constructs. Now, 
hundreds of people had to do this to uh, got involved with this. So every, everybody seen it. There was literally FOIs coming in from every force in the country to say that none of them could produce this evidence. On top of that, there was the, the Crown Prosecution Service. There was an FOI put into them and they're saying that they can't produce this evidence. The Home Office have said that that evidence, the evidence used to enact the 19, uh, Misuse of Drugs Act 1971 was destroyed. Now, my whole defence has always been that there's, been, there's no evidence to back up any of the claims made within the charges. That has all been confirmed multiple times by multiple legal types. It's been... Um, it's been confirmed... It's actually been mentioned in Parliament twice since my bust by Crispin Blunt. He's, he's turned around and said that there, there simply is no evidence to back up the scheduling and that it's all founded in the America, the, the racist American policing of the 1950s, which makes it obviously a breach of the terror, the enforcement of that legislation, a breach of the terrorism act. Now, all of this has all been confirmed multiple, multiple times. Even the barrister I was using confirmed the terrorism angle. He gave his pointers on strengthening the case a whole lot. Every bit of evidence that has been compiled by everybody involved with CEDAW, Future, and various others, all put in, all deemed inadmissible. As, uh, how can I, if all of this, how, how are we supposed to get a fair trial here? Now, on the, when it came to the day of my trial, my barrister decided that he wasn't going to represent us and we putting somebody else in there at the last minute. Somebody who hadn't gone through my case properly and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Now, in the, in the weeks since me and you last went to court with him, I've been sending various bits and pieces in and this lady has been going through it all. And even she admitted that I was the, I was effectively the expert on the, the subject matter expert there. She even said, why don't you go off and do this somewhere else? <laughs> uh, but at the end of it, she was saying, look, a judge will direct the jury to convict you on this particular point, in which, uh, in which point you're going down for six years. Mm-hmm. So, like, I will admit I dropped my arse at that point. Six years, you have no laugh. But there's nothing to back all of this up. I'm not getting a fair trial, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter, they're going to send you down. Unless you plead guilty, they're going to send you down. All right, okay, fair enough. So basically, I'm, I'm not going to, no matter what, I'm going to get convicted. You know, I'm not going to get a fair trial, nothing. As soon as a copper says, you committed a crime, you committed a crime, that's it. Pretty much, yeah, that, that, that is the script. I, even the, the Crown, uh, the Crown Prosecution um, lawyer was talking about how arrogant I was because I seemed to have an, a knowledge of international law. And I was like, yeah, because I've sat and done all the homework and all of this. It's not just me that's confirmed this. I mean, there's been multiple legal types. Right? Even um, outlaws' defence documents, I've gone through that and he's picked up a lot of stuff like on the, the terrorism angle and all the rest of it. Even his people are confirming all of this. Mm-hmm. If this is all being confirmed multiple times, why aren't these judges taking notice of this? I genuinely don't understand it. But 
until you actually get in. Uh, the only way you, do, you can make it understandable is to get into the economics of it, which me and you have talked about multiple times. Mm. Sorry, I was just quickly trying to Google there um, the, the term um, that we learned. The term that we learned when we spoke to the barrister, the appearance in court that you had prior to uh, ultimately your conviction, in which basically we were told that since the 1960s, it's not been possible in the UK as a, as a challenge in defence to a law to challenge, sorry, it's not been a defence to challenge a law. So all evidence that was correlated the compendium, as was reported by the, the barrister in the courtroom at the time, um, was inadmissible because the way the acts and legislative law works in the UK is it's it's basically kind of a strict liability thing. It's, it was spoke with cannabis. It's Is it cannabis? Unfortunately, in an interview, you said it was cannabis, but contested that it wasn't cannabis as is scheduled for under the misuse of drugs regulations. Uh-huh. In, the, in their eyes, you've said cannabis, therefore... It's cannabis. So yeah. when you challenged and asked them to um, go away and prove it was cannabis, they came back and proved it was cannabis by stating that it was cannabis, effectively. Yeah, I mean, uh, their, their, their expert, right? Their, their expert witness, apparently, had confirmed through sight and smell. If that's, if that's the limit of his expertise, he's no better than a sniffer dog. But again, that's what the, the law says. It's about minimum criteria for meeting the qualification of criminality. And in that instance, cannabis is illegal, or sorry, it's unlawful, um, without license or without strict controls. You didn't meet the criteria for the controls, so therefore, in their eyes, everything else is meets this other criteria. Whereas what you presented was such an anomaly to them that you went, no, there's cannabis, the plant, that isn't this drug, that isn't this thing that you've created to be. There is just this naturally occurring thing that has been here for millennia and will be for millennia more. And it, if I think it was procedural issues that kind of got you into the position that you were in, uh, in terms yeah, of was, the... Um, sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the point that um, the barrister was making to us. It was like, if, if we go to trial and get in front of a jury... It was weird because she was going on like a judge is going to direct the jury to convict you on this particular point. Whilst at the same time saying a jury, a jury is never going to understand your technicalities. Wait, so the, the judge will not allow the jury the time to understand the defence. And this is what we saw. Of, it was very disheartening. I mean, it was interesting that I wasn't ushered out. Obviously, I was saying in full disclosure here, I've, I've, I've been to court a few times with Trev since his arrest uh, last January, um, just as a, as a support, obviously in no legal capacity. I have no training. I have no qualifications. Um, and just sort of accumulation of experience in this, just trying to observe and figure out what's happening. And it, it seems that it is, as Trev is stating, a fixed game in the we cannot present a counter alternative. It's legally not possible since this, I don't want to say it's Colson, but I can't remember the name of it. It began with a C. It was in the 1960s and it was basically a trial um, uh, precedent that was set that basically meant that no longer you could, could you bring up and challenge the nature of a law as a defense for it. If you broke that law, that's fine. You then either found guilty or not guilty of it. If you want to challenge the law, you have to do that outside of that arena of defense. And so I think that's yeah. what the misconception has been in, in a lot of people in this country is that, wait, no, I've, the, the law is an arse and I have broken it. They're then still stating, ah, you've admitted you broke the law, though. 
and that it's the semantics of it. And this is where they're, they're hanging us. So it's trying mm-hmm. to learn, as we discussed in the outlaw episode, the language of nullification of understanding mm-hmm. that with, I don't want to say a script, but maybe with a bit more of an understanding of how to say and what not to say and what to say, you could yeah. have still rang the police there and had their protection as it were, but not then maybe being as vulnerable to prosecution because again you were as you always said you would do you immediately went no i'm going to challenge this from the moment they walked into your house to the moment they kicked you out of that station you told the fucking truth and that's what hurt your case because we were led to believe as as citizens of this country that truth trounces power it trounces lies it trounces corruption and greed but it 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 doesn't for us (laughs) we're we're not an art It doesn't. It doesn't even at the top levels. Look at what. Look at what happened to Corbyn. He t- he was completely honest, forthright, truthful in everything that he did, and he still got shafted. Yeah, very true. So it, it almost seems like in this country, if you if you're honest, then you're you're, you're going to end up getting shafted. What is it? The Orwell quote. Um... Sometimes when the, the world moves away from the, the truth, it will learn to hate those that speak it. That's a butchery of it. That's not the quote, but it's, it's something along to those lines that our world has become so false and facadical, if that's even a term. It sounds very nautical when I, it came into my head there. Um, that anyone that is genuine and truthful and honest, yeah, it's, that's a threat because it holds a mirror to the the lies and the the the, the dishonesty of the, the systems and the people that operate within it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having a Blofeld moment now. <laughs> <laughs> Always. He loves, he's going to be the star of the show, I'm telling you, man. It'll be the, the Neo Cat <laughs> show. Probably get more views than me, to be fair, just watching him for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, I'll include, obviously, you were on March 20, uh, March 21, so March of last year in episode 20, which I'll include below so people can get more of a background on the case. But could you give us um, sort of an idea of what, is it where they caught you with, they charged you with, and what the outcome was in terms of the prosecution? Um, uh, production, I got those two charges. It was production, possession with intent to supply of 75 cannabis plants. And I got... Instead of getting instead of getting sent down for six years, I got uh, two. I got eighteen months suspended for two years, and a hundred and fifty-six pound fine, which is like a week's worth of benefits, which is fucking. <laughs> so that's yeah, exactly that. It, it it fucks you for such a long period of time. Just the, just take the fine for a moment, but then you consider the pageantry. How much did it cost that security guard that led you in? How much did it cost the CPS to be there, the judge to be there, your barrister to be there, the, the lights to be put on in that building, the guys in the metal detector at the front, the, the security dudes that appeared to walk around and just look intimidating? Do you know the, the pageantry of all of that? How much did that cost for the outcome to be? Literally, you say you're wrong and you get a little fine and be behaved for two years and you're kind of you're fine. Um, or we'll put you incarcerated for six years. You've done the calculations of this cost. What is it? It's nearly a hundred grand for the first year, and then like fifty grand yeah, afterwards. It's, it's 65000 pounds to send somebody to jail, and then forty-five thousand pounds a year to keep them there. So it would have cost them um, hundred and ten grand for the first year, then forty-five grand a year after ninety ninety hundred and eighty. 235, so there's 
Because you because of one word. Exactly the absurd. That's what's wrong with the entirety of this conversation. It's not about stopping you from doing whatever. It's not about you learning a lesson. It's about will you kowtow down to our authority and to our faces admit the lie. That's yeah. all any of this is about. That's what the, even the checkpoint diversion schemes that are in now in operation in like nine or ten constabularies are about. It's a lot. The, the people there know it. You know what I mean? This is sit with them, same with your experience that you can speak of now with probation. And them just be like, well, what do we do here? You, you, you know more than I do. I'm here to predicate a lie. You know I'm lying. I know I'm lying. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much got that. I, I, as you said, I, I, the lady from probation, I, she looked almost apologetic. She, I, I don't understand why you're here. <laughs> it turned out her son, um, uh, a seven-year-old son, so much from IBD. So I, I ended up giving her a referral to a couple of CBD companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, even the, um, the barrister was saying that I'm the subject matter expert. She knows I'm right, she knows the law's wrong, all the rest of it, but this is the way we do things. And it's literally everybody, as you as you've seen, ever since it's 1960, everybody's just following orders. That's the way the system works, because again, and then to challenge it. Is, is the amount of money that is, is necessary. Uh, I just had Phil Monk on in the previous episode catching up um, with sort of WTU's work and what he's been sort of trying to do. And the cost that they were told of having to have the finances in return to be able to pay the legal fees of the government if you want to take the government to task for a law being corrupt and immoral. And that mechanism means that there is no justice for the poor. There cannot be any justice for the poor. Well, exactly. I mean, I, um, when we had that conversation with Outlaw, he was talking about how um, he's keep put, he's he's keep trying to put the money forward for this judicial review, and he just keeps getting knocked back. But they're currently trying to wind down judicial reviews. It's it's part of the, the Tory sort of plan to remove accountability. Yeah, they really don't want to be held accountable for the crimes at all. They want to take us back. They want us all to be serfs. We live in a very interesting time, so I suppose without getting too maybe conspiratorial, if you look at the World Economic Forum and uh, people like Boris and, and Trudeau and et cetera all signed up to it, and the consequences or what appear to be consequences of the uh, pandemic. I'm trying not to use the C word, by the way, either the beer version of it or the scientific version of it. The virus that's just gone through humanity for the past couple of years. All right. Because that C word is, is having problems with, with people's channels and analytics, so I don't want to use it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the... We're being told that what's happening economically around the world is a consequence of these pandemics and what has just happened. We're now seeing, obviously, studies that are coming out of quite respected institutions that are speculating that global lockdowns actually had a very marginal effect on spread and on death rates, um, but had a dramatic effect on global uh, mental health in terms of anxiety, depression, massive increases in certain groups uh, and across the board of suicidality and suicide isolation um, in individuals, especially the youth. Uh, it's, 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 it's crazy that we're being yeah, told this, this narrative and it's not. It feels very much, in my opinion, that the World Economic Forum and other entities and organizations have set this global agenda. This is why Biden and Boris are both saying build back better. This is why the same slogans, the same campaigns, the same um, white papers are being produced in different economic uh, nation states around the world. And it seems to be towards the creation of a 
a one world governance. Yeah, but that's all tinfoil hat and stuff. You just think it's all been like all over the various websites and everything else. It's just tinfoil hat. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't understand people nowadays, mate. I, I mean, you can sit here, we can talk about these things because we can see them happening, and yet we will be regarded as wackos, to be honest. We've been we've been wackos before, but then we had a brief period. Remember last year, we were proven right for several things. I sat around your house, we had a cup of coffee together. We we're like, we got that right. We really got that right. <laughs> and so, so I remember actually saying to you, saying we are going back back to the uh, conspiracy again. Because uh, I remember saying about my tinfoil hat that I started my videos with. I'm just going to need a new one because we're moving into a world where the majority of what was conspiracy during the height of these lockdowns and pandemic is now consensus science. And that, that's a little bit alarming for anyone that's actually paid some attention to the narrative of what's gone down for the past couple of years. That isn't to say that every absurd lie and narrative that's been put out there is true. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying a lot of the things that have been proliferated as conspiracies, things like the lab leak theory, et cetera, that were getting people removed from platforms and deplatformed are now considered basically consensus by advisors in most of the uh, developed world. Yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed more and more of that. That's why I mean, Joe Rogan almost got himself cancelled over it, and Russell Brand's talked, spoken about it. And uh, it's, I mean, I've, I've not followed it that closely because, to be honest, I mean, over the last year, I mean, especially since this post, I mean, I'm just, I've discovered that ignorance really is bliss. Just be able to switch off from everything for a little, for a little while because I think you've got to. Uh, are you living in the world at the minute the way it is? I mean, we were, as we've just said, we realise just how badly corrupted it is. This is why the, the rich and powerful can't be held to account by us lot. And this is why we get led into wars of aggression and... I don't know, how, do you, how do we solve those issues? I think yeah, you, you and I would say one word, cannabis, because <laughs> you can like, see that larger picture in terms of economic stimulation and end of resource scarcity and the, the global scarcity paradigm and disaster capitalism. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes the biggest weight towards it, like for me. I mean, that's decentralization of power that, and through that. Uh, and every bit of tech is out there to, to see for it right now. I mean, that um, man, you've talked about that Gravitas Carbatura. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is by far the single most exciting cannabis project out there. That's uh, for, for, We should be tapping into the Northern Powerhouse for that sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly that. I mean, if the base model of that will obviously include this in the uh, bio below, guys. That's what I was writing on my tiny little notepad there. Um, this Gravitas car- is Carbon Nutra? Carbatura. Carbatura. I always pronounce it wrong. Uh, the, the project of this is basically giants sort of warehouse using carbon sequestration from the local environment using uh, polluted grey water using then hydroponically grown low THC cultivars of cannabis to create biomass to then incinerate in a closed loop carbon system. It is frankly, yeah, very exciting. Um, and, it, and it's a scalable model. And they've basically, if you look at it, the worse an area you can put it, the more efficient it will be. The more polluting it is, the more toxic the waterways are. Um, and it really, it's, and that's only one part of it. So that's, that's using one application. If you to then as me and Trevor spoke of, 
increase the cannabinoid expressions and profile of, of the plants. Uh, you can increase yield in terms of increasing biomass. You can uh, have a wider exploration of, of actual biochemistry. So cannabinoids, terpenes, uh, flavonoids, et cetera, that can be extracted yes. before it goes to biomass. That's a, that's a thing that um, they're not actually, with gravitas, they're not actually flowering the plants. Mm-hmm. It's all just go, it's going so far, all being grown so far and then just turned into biomass. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I've always hypothesized of using those um, those hydro, hydroponically grown plants for um, seed production for biofuels. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, plants like, see, I mean, on, if, you, if you compare something like a, a hemp plant, see, a hemp plant grown, 0.2% hemp plant grown in the wild, um, that'll produce. Uh, was it 300 to 1,000 gallons of seed oil per acre? You get all of the other byproducts that go with it. You remove the THC cap, that acre of plants becomes 20 to 30 times more productive. Mm-hmm. If you get into hydroponics, you can increase that yield again by around 500%. So if we're going to be using these hydroponically grown plants, then what, use those high THC plants for your, bio, for your biofuel production. Yeah, and I mean, it's all it's all obvious yeah. if you understand the plant as a resource rather than just a drug. Entirely, it's also then if you open up licensing and don't create restrictive industries so that you're only allowed to work on one part of the plant. Um, but I mean, yeah, looking at then using that hypothetical model, uh, as you say, the the production of uh, the chemical constituent components would be able to be extracted, as you say, then creating of bioethanols which you could then use the bioethanols to actually you could bur- even burn them in, again, closed-loop carbon systems using other cannabis plants to sequester that. And it becomes a... It's, it's almost infinitum. It, it's, the, this is tr- it's truly scalable. And the idea of then it, we can still burn shit because we're still going to have to use sort of combustion for, for a little while until we move further with developments of, and for all I don't like it, fusion. Um, again, we, we're a long way off things like uh, the concepts of like zero point energy, even though people like Tesla were fucking around with that way back when. Um, uh, these, this, this gravitas gives you the, the, the opportunity to do all of that because your waste is biochar, which is your graphene. Mm-hmm. But then the the graphene graphene production, like I said, into energy storage solutions. So then, yeah, you biochar, make them into the batteries. You then, yeah, create hubs and networks. And then the idea is, I mean, there's there's some really interesting projects I've seen recently. A guy was using vegetable waste uh, and polymers to create um, solar panels. So there's yeah, they're getting really smart with understanding the basics of the science of how to store and convert kinetic energy into energy and it's just the limitations of human ingenuity at this point is battery technology yeah as you and i know it the future frankly as far as i'm concerned is, is cannabis graphene supercapacitors yeah the, the, that's exactly that's exactly what i see as well i don't see anything that can surpass that right now no i mean there's obviously this there's issues with scalability in terms of size etc but research and engineer sorry ingenuity comes from research and application so it needs to be in the field. We need it to operate for you to be able to look at it and go, ah, what if we do this? What if we change this? What if we modify this? And over time, you know, the first uh, the first uh, DC uh, electrics that we sort of um, came, came up with were incredibly dangerous. You know, when electricity was first in, installed, it caused some shit. You know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's still, it still does in a lot of ways, actually. It's not then sort of taken care of. But the, the idea of then being able to have cheap 
biodegradable batteries that can actually really store enough energy to run the lifetime of something isn't too far unfeasible, I don't think, using this kind of technology or this series of thoughts. Do you know what I mean? Like going down that road. It really isn't. I mean, there's uh, there's already um, studies out there to show that if you put if you um, if you do bilayer graphene, so that's basically one layer of graphene on top of the other, parallel, but you put one of the layers just slightly one degree out, that allows you access to limitless clean energy. I can't remember the exact um, the exact way it works, but apparently that that magic angle opens up a hell of a lot of, pro- of um, extra pro- opportunities for like is it, uh, is what's what's it called the um, superconductor superconductive properties of the of graphene. So is it because it it creates? I'm trying to 3D like map like map think of it and map it in my head, and I'm my brain is literally thinking of that scene in fucking um in Interstellar. Just do a quick a quick Google graphene magic angle. Is that literally what it's called? Yeah. Because what I've got in my head is thinking: is it about then the storage capacity, basically the space in between? Yeah, it's uh, a space. Be- it's the space between the the layers of graphene and the way the electrons move through it. Oh. <laughs> so, oh yeah, so it's moved at a one point one angle on the yeah. top layer, and it creates a it's an unexpected topographical quantum state. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to be able to. I'll include a link uh, below, folks. <laughs> look at this. I'll uh, I'll reach out to one of my science mates actually because I've been looking for an industrialist, someone that knows the the, the real science of this, like batteries, etc., uh, and the, about the polymers, etc. I really want on the show to be able to really discuss uh, the true um, potentials under the knowledge of science today. Do you know what I mean? I um graphene magic. Uh, Chris Asker might be a good one to reach out to for somebody for that. Yeah, good point. Someone within his uh, his sphere would probably be really useful. Yeah. So actually, I, yeah. I can see it in my head that then if it's then if it's lattice, whereas then if it's opened up the angles, it in my head the way I see the shape, it, there is more space. Therefore, if there is more space, the reason superfast is especially the cannabis graphene ones or graphene in general looks to be good is the structure all of it molecularly is it has the space to store the energy but then yeah, yeah. altering the angle it, the, the image that it generates in my head would then yeah you put you put more energy within it so therefore anything you can do to to increase that um that internalized space i mean that's what tesla did when he figured out the internal aerial uh, the first modern design for for, for an aerials uh, which mm. then like, later became obviously wireless technology. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was based on the same sort of thing. If instead of creating external space, it's about finding internal space. And obviously there's, there's quite a few, I can't think of the physicist offhand, but he says there's far, infinitely far more within than without. And he meant that on an atomic level in that as soon as you break something open, there's, there's, there's more, there's just more shit. Yeah, and that's what, that's what CERN is all about. Yeah, yeah, and obviously we're down to like quasars and what a super quasars, whatever else we're down to next, you know. And again, next year they'll be like, oh, we found these other things, and then they'll go, but there's two more, and then inside that, oh, there's, there's two more. I was just reading an article this morning about how they've, um, they've just taken the first photo of quantum entanglement. Right. <laughs> so how did they achieve this? I can't remember. Right? There's obviously some sort of fancy-ass camera. 
Damn, man. It's interesting. So if yeah, if they can then prove beyond a theoretical state. I mean, they're already looking at quantum entanglement as far as my limited knowledge to this uh, realm of study is quite intrinsic towards the next level of quantum computing. I will presume so, yeah. Because it's, it's then moving into... We work in binary states, so the coding of the of the of machines and technology and everything that we've worked on, and then quantum is is not, in binary. Everything is a one or a zero. In, mm. in, a, in a quantum state, everything is it could be a one or a zero or both or neither or anything. Yeah, so it then it, it's even in that. So you've got infinite infinite possibilities. So just it, it's I can't quite. It's it, I feel like we're almost stumbling into the next level of science that I just. I think a lot of people are just going to be, myself included, just, okay, we trust you. Go go, go prove your things. Take, <laughs> take your pictures, come back to us, and then, like, we'll sit here and have I, our stoned conversations, but shit, yeah. we kind of grasp it. Yeah, a lot of these quantum technologies, I think, are really going to transform the way we do things. It's some absolutely fascinating stuff right now. Like, it's, uh, it actually gives us hope for the human race, and, and then I go out the door, and it's a completely different matter. Ah, different matter. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's for my pun lovers out there. I see you guys. Um, yeah, so the technology of cannabis is it was, that's what you and I end up talking about most, really, because it's interesting that the future of humanity is, as we like to speculate, this potential Star Trek future is is based on and built from from cannabis and probably in some ways powered by psychedelic adventure and that kind of curiosity is created by the consumption of, of compounds like, like cannabinoids and, uh, I don't know, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, et cetera. DMT. <laughs> yeah. So again, as you're speaking of with hope there, it's, it's interesting that cannabis is simultaneously, to some people, it is, it is the devil's lettuce. It is the end or be all the reason the world is the way it is, is because of drugs and drug people. And yet to others, it's the injustice it's the the wrong of why have you arbitrarily picked these handfuls of substances thrown them into a, a list together and then going to destroy the lives of people that interact with them you could you could easily be in a reality where gravy is heroin and fucking broccoli is cannabis or it, it is that arbitrary when you remove the moralization and the consequences of its criminalization no just for, just before we went uh, the court last time together and actually, there was a, a report came out from the UN, which has been, um, which they, they ended up not the UN ended up not releasing it for some reason. I can't remember what, but the, the UN body who conducted it, they've put it, they've made it open source, and it's basically how the drug war has opened up a raft of arbitrary detentions. You know, so. Again, same sort of thing. I, I actually put that document in as part of my defence, along with the statements from um, Crispin Blunt and from all the stuff from Seed Future and everything else, all in, inadmissible. Yeah, it's, it's a frustrating thing to see firsthand the failures of the system, the fallibility of it, the... Yeah, the, the fact that we're, we're a city having talk about how it's all arbitrary and the UN have confirmed it's all arbitrary, but some people are just going, I'm just going to sit there and follow orders. 
Well, it's, yeah, at some point in the last century, as we said, with what happened in the UK with this, I don't want to say Colson again, but that's the, the name that's resonating in my head with this, this right. moment of change in, in um, intact in the ability to use the questioning of a law is in defence. Um, the, then prior to that, it was about just getting enough people to go, well, this is wrong. Yeah, we changed that. This is wrong. Yeah, we changed that. Whereas I feel like the systems that have been created since the next LGBTQ plus uh, movement won't get space for that there is it doesn't feel like there isn't a new space for new acceptance do you know what i mean the people have kind of got we'll, we'll accept what was grandfathered in but then legally we've now created space that if if you're wrong you're wrong it doesn't matter if we're wrong for it if the law says you're wrong you're wrong and it is it's this weird thing that the law has become um above reproach yet the people that enforce it and the people that fall foul of it are just people at the end of the day it's it's weird it's like yeah, how, how do how do we ever question the law is it because there's there's still standing acts in parliament now that are, i mean what's the fucking stu the stupid thing like i'm i'm a born yorkshireman i'm pretty sure i remember seeing not too long ago um the law that states that a yorkshireman can kill a scotsman in defense within the castle walls this is like a 1600 fucking act or whatever it is 1500 act and there's all these things where they've never been either revoked or we never kind of built we just build on top of them do you know what i mean and so we never have that conversation. And I feel that that's just what's kind of happening with, with drugs here now is they're going, oh, no, we're putting the, this is the new one law. If you want to have the conversation, have the conversation, we're putting the new law on top of that one. And then if there's another group here, you have a conversation. But instead of just going, well, can we look at all of it and acknowledge that it's all fucked? Yeah, I just... Uh, we, are, we have a very... Um, salient comparison we can make here, I think, in, especially from my, considering my background and my experiences, um, the Iraq war. You know, I, uh, that war, it was, it was a war, yet another war based on lies. Can I ask Another you, sorry. war based on lies. It was all over resources and everything else. Which Iraq war? There was a million... Yeah, there was a million people came out on the streets to stop the war in Iraq. You see, another, uh, yet another fake war based on lies. And yet, where's the outrage for the war on drugs, which is yet another fake war based on lies? And we know this because the historical record shows it. It's, it's a war for, like, it's in the same way that the, the war on drugs led to the idea and the conceptualization and the creation of the war on terror an idea that you can conceptualize an enemy and they are not defined to a nation state. They are not defined by one uh, nationality or identity. It, they're, they're a war with a concept, people that would choose to use drugs. They're not, it's not about the drugs. It's about people that choose to use drugs. Yeah, they're the well, danger. Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, the thing is, because uh, the inclusion of cannabis in the war on drugs is highly divisive. Because its versatility as a resource means that instead of us having, instead of us growing all of our energy production at home, we now have to go off to foreign countries to go and get their resources for our energy production. So the inclusion of cannabis in the war on drugs feeds, feeds the war on terror with woolen acolytes. Yeah, I mean, in which case you've got you've, the inclusion of cannabis in the war on drugs gives you it gives you makes you fearful of everyone every way. 
Exactly that, yeah. It's 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 the same kind of installed fear that is perpetuated and proliferated by uh, the legacy media, by politicians, by even sort of local politics. You know what I mean? It's there is always this scapegoating, this demonization of of a subgroup throughout human history, and it just so happens that right now, because of the acceptance of other identities and forms of um, I don't know, collective acceptance of people's expressions of themselves. Drugs users, drug users are seem to be the last group that you can really like uh, persecute. You can really stigmatize. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. you couldn't go after somebody for their nationality, for their sexuality, for their gender identity, for, do, do you know what I mean? It's, we, we live in a, in a different reality, but it just feels that the, yeah, the war on drugs is the last accepted uh, persecution by the state, mass persecution by the state. The Nixon administration had two enemies, <laughs> the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war of black, so we associated heroin and cocaine with the blacks and marijuana with the hippies, and then we could go into communities, we could vilify their leaders night after night on the evening news. Did we, knew, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. John Ehrlich in 1995. Yeah, that was Nixon's former advisor on drugs when he uh, instituted the... He was the architect the of the war on yeah, drugs. The modern war on drugs, yeah. Yeah, exactly that. And it's... So that's what I'm saying is where we, we live at now is the war on drugs is the tool by which racism, classism, sexism, you know, homophobia yeah, yeah, is, is still expressed. You know yeah, I mean, I mean me, me and you, we've read that WHO document, uh, WHO APD 56, which underlines the, the Schedule 1 status of cannabis worldwide. Something else that was deemed inadmissible. You know, I mean, me and you have read that document and we know it's highly racist. It's the, it's the source of institutionalised racism, if you will. All right. We say PJ talks about uh, this one always sticks in my head. PJ talks about how um, Mohammedan men uh, engage in cannabis abuse as a way of gaining a state of euphoria because the of a lackluster sex life due to the practice of female circumcision. This is literally PJ. It's like, what the hell is this bollocks? Yeah. Well, again, that document, that document is inadmissible in court in defence. Exactly, in defence, but then it wouldn't be as uh, as a piece of evidence in a court case against the government in a judicial review or in some form. Well, yeah, exactly. This is why, I mean, for me, well, well, as, as we're saying, I, I, they won't accept it in that arena. So, OK, right, I think the next stage has to be to go after the cop as a busters, civil case. Yeah, I don't see the point in going for an appeal because if I go for an appeal, there's every chance that it can shaft us further. So I think the next stage has to be going after the coppers themselves because they're independent legal entities and they have to get it right. It's it's kind of like the O.J. Simpson approach to, to justice. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in a criminal court, he got, he got let off because the gloves didn't fit. But in a civil case, he had to shell out millions to his... Ex's family. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting system. That you can find sort of you're not guilty of the crime, but you can be found 
guilty of responsibility for it in a civil case. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting kind of mechanism. And again, it comes down to something you and I have both been told by people in authoritative positions in this country. It doesn't matter what has happened. It's what you can prove in court. It's the only thing that matters is, is what the judge is going to believe, yeah, what, what is admissible and what is procedural. Exactly, and we got we can't admit anything in the court in a criminal case in our defence. So we've got to go another route, which Wait, there, only there would is, I see is civil. There is a uh, just for the record here, folks. There is something that I I'm trying to figure out how I put this out into the public arena. There, there is a possibility that you could instruct if you were to take legal counsel or if you were to act as litigate in person, you can technically bait the CPS. If you can get the Crown Prosecution Service to speak of something which you require in evidence or you have tried to submit but had rejected because it has not been deemed admissible, <laughs> it would then become admissible. If it is then stated into the record, it would then you can then reference back to it. If you can get them to speak of an evidence that isn't in record, you can then present the evidence to, to confirm it on the record. So there are ways that you can sneak things onto the record. There's a few sort of different legal tricks that I'm trying to to learn from different people at the minute um, as to how you, you, it's not, it's gaming the system ultimately when you look at it, because frankly, this is a game. It's a pageantry. When you walk into there, it's a set. It's you, you look between the wall and the facade of it. It's a designed set. You know what I mean? They put on their wigs and, and it's the, there is a, a procedure and a pageantry to it. It's a performance at the end of the day. And it's about you being stood before those that are your superior, those that are your better. They're no better than you. They're more informed and, yeah, it's then you having the ceremony of hung head, hands in palm. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And it, that's all it is, is just a a revolving door of fuckery. Oh, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's... It's, it, it really is just as ridiculous as what you see. Like, and, but at the same time, it's as ridiculous as all that pageantry is. It's also horrifying to think that, and just in the time that I've been involved with this, I've seen people lose their families over all of it, over this, over what I, I know beyond a reasonable doubt is a criminal conspiracy of fraud and terrorism being committed against us all. We know this. It's been confirmed by various legal types who've looked at every bit of evidence. And yet here, why are we are literally victims of the state. Yeah. So I was just uh, Googling my ex, so I wanted to bring something up, but I wanted to make sure that I hadn't dreamt it because it sounds so insane for a second there. Um, the London lawyer in training uh, in the UK is to choosing a vegan alternative to the traditional wigs that they have to wear, which are all made from horse hair. chose cannabis fibres. Um, yeah. And so he's then soon to be obviously practicing. And then if he's then bringing in a wig where he's literally wearing cannabis on his head, yeah. and yet it's still then going to have to be forced by the law to go, you were in possession of cannabis while in possession of cannabis and send you down. And we're supposed to just look at this and go, that seems rational. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just I don't I don't I don't get how we support what is in part of this. I know obviously we're supposed to respect the uniform and be fearful of, of the authorities and, and just be scared and live in our little little corners of our lives, but 
what about the people that actually believe there's truth and there's justice? The people that are going through life going, well, drugs are bad and druggies are bad. And then they hear a story of someone that's not a bad person that happened to do drugs. And I mean, it, it happens, believe it or not. That's like, unfortunately, statistically, the vast majority of people of all consumers of all substances, mm-hmm. uh, according to uh, global drug surveys and the World Health Organization's recent statistics around dependencies. Um, so, yeah, the, the, these c- conflicting ideologies in that uh, cognitive dissonance and bias of them being low like, oh, but, but the drugs are bad but they're a good person but bad but good and then those arguments fall into arbitrary arbitrary definition as they should good and bad are subjective do you know what i mean this is what the law says there is no good and bad did you break the law yes it's not good or bad you've broken the law they don't go into moralizing that system is designed to remove oh, no, no, no. Uh, i'm going to disagree with you there because the law is supposed to be moral well, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I, okay, I'll separate the difference. Their version of moral and actual moral. It's not moral yeah. by what I would consider people's human standards. It's moral exactly. by the arbitrary morality that's been created by institutions. I'll agree with that. Yeah, uh, well, no, that one I'll agree with, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, their, their morality, absolutely. In, I'm, 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 it angers us when I look at it all because I, I spent years pushing myself to get every single government agency I could on my CV. Now, I, mean, I went to Iraq in 2003, which allowed us to get a security clearance, which well, took us to work for British Aerospace, um, the Satellite Defence Network, the police, GCHQ, MPS, CPS, DWP, Home Office, the whole bloody lot at one time or another. I know how hard I had to push myself to, to do all of that. And to see people just follow orders and have a system that I thought was fair made a complete mockery of yeah, it almost it makes us feel like I've wasted those years pushing myself that hard. Mm. It's it makes you wonder what what the hell kind of country do we bloody live in? Yeah. yeah. You know, we're always taught that we live in a fair country that where if you commit a crime you'll get a fair trial and blah 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 and it's like nah nah nah, nah. it's it's not it's nothing like that at all. Actually, I think if more people realise the kind of stuff that me and you realise, I think you'd have a lot more people out on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite true that you and I go through waves of apathy and great grief, rage and anger. It's it's, it's, it's a difficult spectrum <laughs> yeah. of emotion. You, some mornings you wake up and, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm coming around, do the drive and just... just ah! Another day, it's kind of sick, <laughs> just mope with a cup of tea, like... We'll get through it. It's fine. It's fine. Because again, I think you and I, we, we share a kinship in that you and I can both see a much larger picture that just to a lot of people makes us seem quite uh, lunatics for lack of a better <sighs> way of wording it. And, and again, it's, it can be an intimidating idea. And I'm not saying that you or I particularly are that knowledgeable or intellectual or have a grand IQ and we're any great, whatever. It's just that we've both spent consistently several years really looking at this from an objective position, changing our opinions, advancing our knowledge base and arriving at the same conclusion that it is entirely the corruption of a small group of individuals at all levels 
that keeps this grand lie going. That is, as you said, that if the people, if the main, if the media, the legacy media was worth its weight, they would be grabbing these narratives and exploring. They would be truly looking at what is happening and understanding that actually the demonization of the heroin consumer on the average city street corner is intrinsically linked to our international um, uh, policies abroad. You know, it's intrinsically linked to our energy production policies, to our um, socioeconomic policies within various regions. Everything is so intrinsically linked. And you and I see the linchpin of this is the ultimate renewable resource in cannabis. Yeah, um, I was just a, a couple of days before going in for my trial. I was, uh, I think, about, I think it's um, is one, one of the green organisations. Uh, I, um, I can't which one it is now. They're apparently, they're suing the government over the the, um, the lack of ideas for net zero. Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, I, I delivered one year, two years, five years ago, and Henry, it's, and it wasn't like it was a new idea. It was Henry Ford from 100 years ago. You know, if we listened to Henry Ford 100 years ago, we wouldn't be in the shit now. But instead, we listened to Harry Anslinger in 1937, who talked about how just one marijuana would make white women want to sleep with black and Latino jazz musicians. And that scared the shit out of middle America and led to prohibition. Yeah, and then on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, a certain Rudolf Diesel falls into the North Sea while trying to get to England for the Diesel Unification Conference, and all of a sudden, petroleum is the main uh, base crude that it's going to be used for combustion engines and not vegetable oils, which is what they were looking at with sunflower and cannabis. So Exactly. It's interesting how history plays out like that. It's almost like there's some grand acts occurring behind the scenes. But I digress. There's some criminal conspiracy theories again. Yeah. And again, it's I'm not suggesting that there's like five people sat in a room that rule fucking everything. There are people, a small pile of individuals in everything that do seek to do so, whether they actually are able to implement all of their um their machinations or not is is a different situation. Yes. Not five. <laughs> I know their names. <laughs> no, 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 actually, yeah. There's um, oh, what's her name? Abby Abby Martin. She does, she does a, a podcast called The Empire Files. She used to be on RT doing a, a program on there called Breaking the Set, where which is where I discovered her. And uh, on an episode of The Empire Files, she talks about a, a book that was um, released. I think it was a couple of years ago about how. Eight corporations basically rule everything across the world. They they own all the various other corporations. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, if you look at food, fashion, fuels, and even then, it's yeah. it's, it's, it's it's the illusion of competition because you got to remember here, folks, that the way that investment has been diver- diversified since Reaganomics in the eighties. Uh, has meant that it's all about venture capital investment and ownership of, of the investment in the shares. So it doesn't matter who has actually sat at the t- head of that company. They don't necessarily know shit. They're often just, a, again, another puppet in the same way the, the political leaders are in, in all, I'd say, all of the countries around the world. Um, and it is, yeah, it's the people that then run those investment vessels, um, interesting language that they use, um, that then control the, the the high seas of finance, shall we say. So, yeah. Something else that I pointed out to, the, to, um, to my solicitor, the, the, the solicitor who took over, 
And she almost, she almost thought I was one of these freemen on the, on the land type. Uh, she turned around and, talk, and she said something about how um, this is the law of the land, and I had to correct that. And I was like, no, 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 this is maritime law. A maritime law that was established by your Navy that we would never have had but for cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is, to her ear, though, you may as well have said that uh, I like peaches because they're green. Exactly. That's literally what she heard and went, okay. Because, again, that's what I was saying before about the big that's a, that's the bigger, exactly bigger, the, the bigger kind of, thing. Yeah, that's a, that's the kind of vibe I was getting. Yeah. yeah, it's like by the end of it, she said, she said like, oh, thank God for cannabis whilst laughing. I was like, you really don't get it, though, do you? Well, it's, it's using a kind of regressivism through thinking to arrive at the origin of, of, of an issue. So you and I kind of both did say, that, why are drugs illegal? Okay, let's look at the economics of this. Let's look at things like the DuPont family and what was going on with, um, what the hell was the paper merchant in North America, the Yellow Press? Oh, um... Name escapes me right now. Hurst, Randolph yeah, Hurst. Hurst. Randolph Hurst, thank you. Um, yeah, and, and individuals like that. So, and then even further back from that, you then... No, Randolph, Randolph Hurst was another one who financed all of the, the prohibition, prohibition as well because of... Um, he was a promulgator. Cannabis, of uh, cannabis was affecting his investments in Timber, which for, for his yellow journalism. So uh, his yellow journalism led the, the prohibition of cannabis, which sets his timber stocks way up. There's also the the connections. I mean, there's there's a few copper barons to be chucked in there, and a few other um, physical resources uh, people that were at the top of their game yeah. at the time that obviously set to gain. I mean, the yellow top press are analogous to the red top press that we have now in 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 the UK, mm-hmm. and the links between the Murdoch uh, the Murdoch family and the UK parliament until obviously quite recently but still it continues to some degree just quite more overt than covert uh, sorry covert than overt um was the same that was going on then so they were basically the mouthpiece for politics at the time and politics were being politicians were being gaslit by fucking harry enslinger and others of going like what is it the u.s general uh surgeon general once testified in court in evidence of the effects of marijuana that he consumed a marijuana one night and it actually turned him into a bat he didn't mean yep. it. He was asked to clarify if he meant, oh, do you mean you felt like? And he said, no, it turned me into a bat. That was part of the justification of the evidence bundled and informed the consensus for the law in America. It's, it's an, an insanity. And as you said, with the, the accusations of, of uh, jazz musicians using it to, you know, create sexual promiscuity amongst uh, white housewives was, again, just playing to the, the fears of, of the, the, the middle class who were still dealing with coming to the ends of sort of certain parts of segregation. There's still obviously quite a lot of, of institutional issues at the time. But then this idea of them seeing this for what they considered forced integration or what most people consider just progressive. Yeah, and, and the great, uh, just coming out of the, the Great Depression as well. So people actually had a bit of money in their pocket and they were starting to get lives and all the rest of it. Whereas, so yeah, they had to have some money and they had to be feared of. Exactly that. And this is then what we saw with the with the Cold War. Yeah, well, you know, with, the, with, with then the, the Korean uh, War, we've just gone through American history here, but obviously with the yeah. Korean War and then leading through the <laughs> through just the stagnation of the Cold War, which was again an intentional thing to have a boogeyman. Countries yeah. understood at the end of the Second World War that it was very necessary to have a boogeyman. But if, if you remember, when the Americans decided to join the Second World War in 1942, all of a sudden, hemp was the was the saviour. We had the hemp for victory campaign, didn't we? 
We did part, part of that is because America spent the most part of the war selling its resources to both fucking sides. So then when it came for them to get in the war, they needed someone to fucking use in the war. Yeah, but everybody <laughs> thinks everybody thinks that, that all of that um, that him for victory campaign was all about the the um, the favors for for like ropes and uniforms and stuff like that. But what many people don't realize, it was actually all about the root balls. For gunpowder. And it smelled lovely on the battlefield. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the highest of high explosives. <laughs> I was going to say, that is definitely anything you need to keep the THC in when you're using the cannabis, explosives. So at least if I'm going to be blown up by something, I want a, I want a good terpene profile. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, man, that's some morbid shit. But yeah, it's it's it, again, it, it shows how fast um, an authoritative institution and a populace and the general zeitgeist of a culture can change towards its opinion of one thing. So we saw this very quickly with since basically the mid nineties. I mean, it started technically in, I can't remember which Midwestern American state, uh, they created effectively the first compassionate care access program, but it was very limited and very kind of abusable. Um, but then obviously California 96, kickstarted this whole thing of the idea of well, we term it now prescription cannabis or the medical use of cannabis or in America, medical marijuana. Um, and then since that, the, the shift in people's ideology, the vast majority of people now are for medical cannabis because they think medical cannabis as it were, or prescription cannabis, whatever wording they hear, they think of epileptic children. They think of a sick and dying person or uh, an elderly person getting use of their hands again from using a balm or, it's they've really workshopped a narrative into it. Yeah, I, that's yeah. And as you said, we talked about this years ago. It, it's this whole harm reduction narrative, rather than like, yeah, look, this stuff's absolutely bloody and really bloody good for you. Just crack on with it. But yeah. uh, we know all of that was all written in the. International treaties back in the 1950s. Uh, yeah, that, that IHO was that, that document details it all. Wait, it kind of uh, it kind of started in, in. If you look at it, I suppose the first major intervention is around 1922 with the Opium Conventions, and so that's yeah. when that's when the the global collective power elites got together and were kind of like, drugs is a thing. How much are drugs worth? If we restrict mm. drugs, we can control drugs. And again, uh, probably I'm going to put some allegedly in there and a bit of, you know, this is probably a hot take and maybe quite conspiratorial thinking. But if you actually look, it feels like once we got conglomeratization of international power, either Britain went, oh, drugs are a hell of a business to get into, or the rest of them went, you sell drugs, let us sell some drugs. Because since then, global powers have been intrinsically involved. I mean, it's 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 speculative as a conservative estimate to be worth three hundred fifty billion a year of the illicit yeah. trade, and that's that's still little figures, I would say, compared to its actual impact. Yeah, well, just look at, look at Afghanistan. I mean, um, in, in Afghanistan, the the Americans they couldn't they couldn't have farmers farming stuff like. Wheat and barley or whatever, because that would impact on American farmers' interests, which is why they had to grow poppies for heroin. You know, when Afghanistan accounts for ninety-five percent, sorry, is it ninety-five percent of the world's supply of heroin? I think it's up there. Yeah, yeah, um, and America accounts for eighty-five percent of world world demand. Yeah. 
And uh, the other thing that Afghans got is uh, quite a quite a few uh, mineral deposits, especially stuff like lithium, which again I was going in, going into those yeah, those um, American electric cars. What's got your attention there? Like, um, I'm trying to decipher these really crappily put together graphics. Um, right, so it's currently adjusted figures for opium production in tons between 1990 and 2019, so over a 30, uh, basically a 29, 30-year period. Afghanistan oh. was responsible across these figures, adjusted figures, for over 80% of global opium production. Certain years, mm-hmm. it drops, like, significantly. Big drop. Uh, Taliban uh, invasion before the... Sorry, Taliban ban before the U.S. invasion in 2000. Uh-huh. Like the graph's going like this, and it just drops for one yeah. year block and then as soon as the US invasion is done production is ramped right the fuck back up yeah but that's it that's it that was part of the theory one of the the conspiracy theories of 9-11 was that the American banks were losing 300 million a month due to the Taliban doing way too good a job of cracking down on the opiates industry wow so the other the other thing to look at the comparisons of these statistics anyone that remembers sort of the the uh, British invasion of Af- uh, the American and British was backed invasion of Afghanistan uh, in the turn of the 21st century. We'll remember Helmand as mm. being a very contentious area. Over 115,000 hectares were used for pop- uh, poppy production. In, yeah, and the show in, the- in, in 2020, and the rest of the other regions, for example, like Kabul, is only 284 hectares. So it should like. Yeah. It, like the That's Americans, where the Americans were most prevalent. Isn't that where they had, um, I can't remember the name of that base was, there's a famous base down there. Yeah, that's right, Hellman. They had a, I can't remember the name of the base, but they had a real rough time there because what that, going through Hellman, they wanted, they wanted to put a, a pipeline that goes from Saudi to Israel. And the America, and all, there was a lot of our lads lost their lives and limbs in, in Hellman, all over a bloody pipeline. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at then uh, Russia's, I can't remember the name of the, the. One thing I will say: if, um, if there's anybody watching this who's who's grown their own, there's a company called the Real Seed Company who deal with a lot of Afghan farmers and the rest. Of it. Some of that their stock is absolutely outstanding, very uh, very reasonably priced, well worth a look into. I'm trying to find a certain. Image that I saw last year. What's up? Yeah, the projected uh, exportation networks from uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. The pipelines wanted to run through uh, Eastern Europe and through the Middle East into Europe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the projections of these basically, it's it's an image that when it's laid down over a map, it maps out current conflicts. <laughs> It's, yeah. it, again, if you want to look at, say, uh, for a better idea of how foreign powers use destabilized, re- destabilized regions to, and create warfare and insurgency to then create a need for uh, invasion and stabilization, just go look at, like, Venezuela and South America. Look at the CIA back, like, actually, these are record, recorded non-conspiracy theories, like actual factually recorded events of the CIA coups in South America. All of mm-hmm. all of a resource control, which again brings back to that thing of how frustrating I guess it is for you or I when we can see 
cannabis could end petroleum, the need for global petroleum production. Exactly. So the, the, the inclusion of cannabis in the war on drugs feeds a war on terror with willinacolites from all over the world, thanks to the likes of BP and Shell and all the rest of it. Looking at well, that's obviously why they don't want they, they don't want those industries to stabilize because then that destabilizes the military industrial complex as well. So the likes of, if, they, if the likes of British Aerospace and Raytheon don't have anybody to sell products to, what happens to them? Yeah, they're, they're too big to go under after all. Well, yeah, this is it. I mean, unless the, the uh, military industrial complex suddenly starts diversifying its portfolio and its production of, of products, then yeah, well. I mean, this is what we're seeing with the over-militarization of not just the American streets, but predominantly the American streets, but also here in the UK and in other uh, Western democracies. You know, Bojo, obviously, there's the famous thing with the, with the water cannons, but that's, I guess, in a lot of ways, a misnomer and a distraction from the fact that look at the average response units that are in most towns and cities now. Most places have an armed response unit, terrorism units, you know, they, they have rapid response units. And it's they're preparing for threats that a lot of them, frankly, I, I would speculate, uh, either manufacture or allowed to occur. We've seen this in the, F the FBI in, in trapping many people around the world and finding out about plots, inserting operatives to ensure that they get to commit it, but not actually do it so they can lock them up forever. And then, you know, it's all just, yeah. Yeah, when I, I remember working for uh, when I was working for the police down in Warwickshire. When I probably uh, the only time I ever felt scared was talking to a, a guy from ERU because he was just thick as two short blanks. And I'm like, how the hell do you end up with a job with a job where you're handling a gun? Because you follow <laughs> every instruction instantaneously. <sighs> yeah, literally, no, like, I, move I, left, I, left. All kinds of alarm bells ringing him like. It's it's scary because the, the the this arms race, as Neil Woods discussed it, of the the war on drugs has created, is taking it from being your your hippie guy who would quite happily you know wear your baggy trousers and and, and be emblazoned in the emblems of his culture and not be too worried about things because you'd there wasn't really an issue. Then the war on drugs occurred, and it's like an evolutionary mechanism in terms of survival of the fittest and then so the the creatures that learn to adapt to their environment survive and the people that adapted best to the war on drugs were criminals not the criminalized not those lot that are just decent folk that just like to interact with drugs and either can, can grow our own or, or buy and trade and interact with 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 people that we identify as being moralistic and decent people but also other criminalized individuals most people don't want to be around criminals a criminal is someone that will steal from anyone. A criminal is someone that would hurt anyone. A criminal is someone who's just, just a, a tr not someone that is not. A, a criminal. A criminal is also somebody who just follows orders. I would exactly, exactly that. It's somebody that it doesn't have the ability to to run through their individualized moral filter their individual actions. So yeah. every, it's everything is just no. I don't need to look at that. I don't need to self reflect. I don't need to you know um, be critical or analytical of my own actions. I just. Yeah, and the people like that, I feel, are often found and then put into situations like the, the army or policing services or other institutional roles that are basically, as you say, literally just follow orders. They are proud and quite happy 
knowing that they're in their belief that them following orders is for the greater good. They are, in, in my opinion, indoctrinated or in belief of this good, bad paradigm. I am a good person doing a good role. And then therefore anyone that I've been told is bad is bad. I don't need to question if they're good or bad. They're, they're a bad person. Why would I wouldn't be here if, if they weren't bad? You know what I mean? Exactly. You, see, you can see that self-fulfilling prophecy that I imagine goes on in the heads of most coppers. You know what I mean? They, they can't not just, have... not, just, not just most coppers, most people, man. This is, this is why, like, see, I, I wouldn't have one of the reasons that I looked at working for the government. It was like, oh, if, I, if I'm doing all of this good work, I'm getting paid all of this, this good wages and all the rest of it, I must be a good person. Yeah, you're being rewarded. It's literally uh, Pavlovian conditioning. You're being rewarded for a behaviour, so you repeat the behaviour. You're then being punished for a behaviour, and you're supposed to. This is why they're so frustrated with you, Trev. They've punished, they're punishing you. They're threatening you. Why didn't you back down sooner? Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. that's, the, that's the offense. It's they couldn't almost care less about what you've actually done. It's that you've had the fortitude, you know, the, the hubris to stand the against you. Yeah, to actually go, I I'm sorry, I believe you're wrong. Here's <laughs> here's a load of reasons why I think you're wrong. And they obviously they're prepared for this. They in that circumstance, they can just go, we don't admit this, I don't accept this. You've said this, therefore you're done. Say you're wrong, or we're gonna fuck you. Yeah. That, that's, exactly. that's not that's not justice. That's that's like fucking a mafia kind of fucking thing. You know what I mean? It's it's really exactly passive aggressive, and there's there's no discussion of right or wrong. There's no why were you doing this? What was your aim for it? It's it is literally as arbitrary as did you do the thing? Yes, here's the punishment. Yeah, in mitigation, you can obviously discuss why you did it and 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 uh, present evidence as not necessarily evidence, but you can present reasons as to why you should have a lessened or reduced sentence. Mm. Um, but yeah, once you, you're guilty, you then fall foul of the the mandatory minimum, which in your case, I think you 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 fell to. But it was it's it's just ridiculous that the threat of that is we're either basically going to give you enough to say we'll go away, or we're going to fucking really ruin your life and waste close to fucking half a million quid <laughs> to, to put to put you in a in a in a cage. Can you imagine what you could do over fucking six years if they give you a million uh, half a million quid? Oh god! I, I if they were willing to like, piss that money, I know that much. <laughs> But that's 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 how absurd this really is, though. It's the same with homelessness. If you then look at the criminalization of it, if you then look at everything that they they do to police this, to govern it, to you know force people into institutions and go, all right, you know the dog, your only companion in the world. Yeah, you're not allowed that. You know drugs, the only thing they've ever comforted you. Yeah, you were going to test you, so you can't have them. And then you wonder why then people are going to choose to live on the street. They're going to choose the life of autonomy, of self-regulation and governance and control over a prison sentence because of their trauma, because of their, they're struggling with their mental health, their physical health, their current station and situation in life. That is immoral. That is, is, is fucked up. But that's the, the situation we live in is that um, an overarching authority in the government says, well, this is the law. And most people go, well, oh, it is the law, though. And that sentence alone is so painful to me because it, it just doesn't, I don't, I, I, what happens when they fall foul of the law? And they go, well, yeah, but the, the law is law. And they'll have their excuses. They'll have their reasons. They'll have their outrage, their frustrations. But if we all suddenly came to the realization today, we could maybe do something about that. Do you know what? If enough people were truly outraged by any one number of these things, something would get fucking done. This is what I keep saying. It's a criminal conspiracy of fraud and terrorism. And so until people actually start to realize that, they're just going to think, oh, the law's the law. 
Which, why do you um, think well, the, 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 do, you, do you think it's ignorance or do you think it's fear? Is it the idea of imagine then you're already in a, you're, you're already in a prison. You know you're in no. a prison. You're watching the guys down the line getting beaten for doing a thing. Your inclination is to then probably not to do that thing to avoid getting beaten. And so it's almost it's the it's the psychology of the uh, the what the hell did they call it the synopticon or whatever it was the the three sixty prison design of the. I'm going to tell you right now, I, I genuinely believe it is ignorance. And the reason I know it's ignorance is because the two lads that were dropping us off on the way back, I turned around, I turned around at one point and I, and I asked him, how would you feel if you discover that everything that you're doing is based on literally nothing at all? And they turned around and said, obviously, we wouldn't be too happy, obviously. But that's the position that you're in. But they can't even justify it. But if you'd have been asked, then why do you think cannabis is legal? They'd have then said, oh, it causes psychosis. You could have then re- rebutted yeah, that. Um, they could have then said, oh, look at this. You could have rebutted that. It's, I don't... Yeah, there was one other guy, there was one guy came into the cell at one point and they turned around and, oh, it's in this schedule and because of its harm to society. Uh, and I just, at that point, I, I was like, no, get out. Every word out of your mouth is going to be false by representation. You've got a pal there who's going to be a witness to just how badly you're going to get this wrong. I was like, oh, just leave me alone, please. They're really not doing any due diligence whatsoever. It It really genuinely is ignorance. But it's choosing to be ignorant. Because, Willful. like you say, I mean, my experience, I follow, the, the only reason I know that there's nothing to back up the charges, the reason I've shouted about this for years, is because I followed their procedures. Mm-hmm. Their procedures say you, you've, got to, you've got to have full justification before you can, uh, fully evidence justification before you can move to arrest. And the only thing that gives them justification is that Schedule 1 or Schedule 2, whatever it is at the minute. The, the, and without the, any evidence to back that up, they cannot move to arrest. But the, the issue is that, as they've said, the, the it's self-evident. It is a crime to possess cannabis without the strict limited uh, strict limited circumstances by which you can yeah, do it. Yeah, Schedule 1 cannabis. I completely agree with that. Schedule 1 harmful stuff. Agree, but yeah, if it's really as badly, if it's really as badly as harmful as that, yeah, keep it banned. But yeah, but I, I, I've never, I was growing, it didn't mean any of that. Like the issue is that the qualifying criteria is used to categor to create categorization. Once something is categorized, it is defined, and this is the, yeah, the this is what they've is that- this is what they've argued that cannabis in terms cannabis that isn't lawful is any other cannabis that isn't lawful is Schedule One cannabis as far as they're concerned. This is how they, they've, they've tricked the game, is they've just locked it out by then going, all right, we've created arbitrary ruling under uh, the Misuse of Drugs Regulation 2001 Schedule 2 for a cannabis-based medicinal product uh, designed for human consumption, uh, product designed for yeah, medicine designed for human consumption. Mm-hmm. And then they've created this arbitrary classification of a handful of cultivars of low THC and called them hemp. They're your yeah. lawful ways to possess cannabis. Anything else that falls outside of that remit is, all, is caught into that law. They can't see it. And this is why your defense was a good way of challenging it because it allowed us to see how the system responds to it. And their response to it is, we don't accept your argument. They, <laughs> exactly. That's the frustrating thing of it is I, in, in 
a philosophical debate if you were in a chambers of one of the uh, hallowed university fucking de- debate societies across this fucking country you would have validity in your claim because it's evidenced it's rational it's moralistic it's it's tangible and real but because yeah. the court system is based upon that which is admissible Broad. therefore excess ex- accepted they do not accept it and we know this is all part of the greater narrative in that before they then changed the law in 2018 in November to create prescription cannabis, the uh, lawful prescribing of cannabis in certain circumstances. Um, they said that they did not, the cannabis had no accepted therapeutic value, accepted therapeutic value. It's not that it didn't have any, again, it's really the, the language. They're very smart with this language. So it does have cannabis, your cannabis, the cannabis that isn't a schedule one substance because it doesn't meet the criteria has intrinsic therapeutic value. So therefore, they can't schedule it under their own definitions to meet the the criteria, which is what your argument was based on. Which I said would again would have merit in a even a in a judicial review environment or in a just basic rational debate. But in their arena that they have carefully constructed and crafted, we are denied justice. Yeah, exactly, exactly it. So um, we are paying for this, and we're all of our council touches about the gold five percent to pay for this bollocks, you know, which includes the police who are paying taxes on for that, um, for that black market industry as well. So it's, I think it's the case we need to, we need to broaden our research into looking at, I guess, the economic costs of this. If we can have a calculation of how much it's just cost them to put you in this position versus then the impact it's had on you versus then the potential, the, the, potential that your knowledge and your experience could have garnered you in a lawful end of cannabis prohibition market? No, I, as, as a point, I think this is one of the reasons that the, the, the barrister turned around and said, why don't you go and do this somewhere else? Was that, that I pointed out that um, in this country, I'm worth universal credit. In another country like America, because of what I've learned over the last 10 years, uh, I could be uh, just as a as basic grower, I could be making 100 grand a year. But because of my background before that, with all my management experience and all the rest of it, I could be something maybe into a quarter of a million years as a master grower. It's a frustrating state of affairs. I mean, I, I feel very similar. I was referred to in a, in a consultation the other day as, as a subject material uh, expert as well. And it got me thinking, like, oh, what's the term? Googled it, and I looked at kind of the salaries of people in various industries and was like, what the fuck? And it's just so detached from, I guess, my what expectations. We, uh, what what our realities are. Yeah, from, it's like they're talking about working for a fucking month to pay for a year of what I live on now, if not more. Like, working for a week. I mean, the, the the juxtaposition between the integrity of the individuals that are that this, I mean, I basically see it almost as a, it would be a crime if I set up a cannabis business now. It wouldn't be a lawful crime, but it would be a moralistic one against my own principles. I don't, I don't want to profiteer from the perpetuation of prohibition. And unfortunately, there are some amazing brands and products and services and whatever else out there right now. But the fact that not every single person is adding towards a pot and a campaign to truly end the war and free everybody and and start to have the rational conversation about the harm that's been caused over the past 50 years, it's disingenuous and it kind of falls towards profiteering. And I know there's some people that are going to be offended maybe by that contention, but it is 
controversial. I, I get that, but in, for me personally, that's all I'm saying. It's the same reason I, I kind of I struggle with um, the the notion of the prescription system. You know, is that I don't want to involve somebody else in my healthcare or in my life. Do you know what I mean? It's I I know what cannabis does for me. I don't want to have to involve another agency or entity. Yeah, that, that one I would agree with. I, I'm very much like that myself. I, I'm getting involved with uh, other agencies over the last year because of because I didn't ever have me the weed to use. I've ended up getting addicted to codeine and pregabalin. You know, I generally wake up at like five o'clock every morning, lean, scratching on, itching on. I'm like, oh, I've got to have a fix. <laughs> get up and get them, and then I'm already and getting a couple of hours kip. I mean, like gabapentin and um, what's its, it's a sister drug that's often prescribed with it? Um, I can't remember. Pregabalin. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, they've both been scheduled uh, without prescription as a, a class C drug. No. So they've actually created criminalization for um, possession and, and trade because there is now an illicit market. In, in the UK for, uh, well, it has been for, for a little while. Uh, we kind of picked it up at the same time America did, but obviously nowhere near as much because we were kind of insulated by not really having too much access to things like Oxycontin. Um, but yeah, as you said, that, again, this, this detachment from the point of government, which is to protect its citizens, that it will allow the proliferation and the creation of a pharmaceutical industrial complex that perpetuates a sickness industry and criminalizes conversations around wellness. Uh, the, the, uh, for me, the drug that's uh, the drug uh, the group of drugs that's going to cause real havoc when supply start to get to start uh, to wane or whatever would be yeah, benzodiazepines. Mm. I those things are absolutely evil from what I can see. I um I know a couple of lads who are, are heavily addicted to them. Um, one of them ended up having a nervous breakdown when he tried to. Quit them, and uh, another one ended up in hospital. Uh, it's the pair of them are they're, they're going to be addicts for the rest of their lives. They're, they're not getting off them, and if they do get off them, they've still got it because of the way benzos work on the brain. They're still going to have addiction or death or, or withdrawal or death. Sorry, and they, they can go through that whole post-acute withdrawal symptoms as well, which can be pretty horrendous from from all accounts. Yeah, I mean, it, this seems to be reset of neurology. So there's, again, contentious kind of conversation, I guess, in that there's an argument to be made both sides that all dependency is treatable because it's just about resetting neurology and behavioral patterns. So through mm -hmm. enough therapy and through, I mean, we're starting to obviously understand uh, the where the stuff like Ibogaine works and ayahuasca, et cetera, and what that's able to do in terms of, either resetting the neurology on one side or in the latter's case, creating a new experience of reality that creates such an ingrained neurological pathway that it, it, it's the same as having a religious experience in people with the AA, for example, that they have mm -hmm. such a profound experience that they draw will from that whenever they would otherwise think that, oh, normally I would do this. And it's either from, there is obviously dependent components towards uh chemical abuse um but the majority of it is 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 human you know what i mean most in fact drugs are neutral in that sense but it's the way in which we sort of in interact with them but again the, the benzo conversations we've not really had that in the uk yet all we did was 
what, 20 years ago, quietly try to start ramping down um, prescriptions. But all that did is, again, create a massive illicit market. And now we're flooded with fake diazepam from India. And those are cut with all sorts of shit. And the, the issue is their, their powder mixes, when they're pressing them, some of these 10 milligrams that they're selling are closer to a fucking hundred. And some of them are closer to naught point one zero, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's the discrepancy in them. Uh, it's, it's quite ridiculous. And again, it's not having that that conversation to go back to, to Gabe Bomarte's quote that I, I often do in this podcast. If don't ask why the addiction, why ask, you know, why the trauma, why the pain? Why, why does this individual need to keep going back to this 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 substance? It's it's doing something. Obviously, there is the argument of escapism. So then it's even if it's not individual pain, it's socioeconomic issues. It's living in the environment. You do this hopelessness that the vast, vast majority of us feel, especially now coming out of this collective um, global pandemic, that we're now moving into what the potential for, as they're saying, is being billed as World War Three and economic collapse and the Great Reset and all these other these grand narratives that are just terrifying to the vast majority of the populations of all nation states. Aye, it does make me. I mean, I'm 50 year old now, so I, I know I've only got maybe 25 years left at best. So it, it, make, it makes me worry about the kind of world that the likes of you are growing into. Uh, I, I like that I'm still growing. Yeah, I, I, well, you're only 30 year old. You've still got a long way to go. Yeah, mate, take me word for us. <laughs> I mean, you can still be the same person in 10 years' time, and you, know, you, you feel devolution like. Yeah, oh, indeed, indeed. I mean, I sit here 34 this year, and yeah, I've probably been through half a dozen to a dozen iterations of myself because I keep having. Thankfully, often down to antigenic substances and um, sort of revelatory experiences. This transition, I guess, from different chapters of my life, a recognition that certain behaviors and likes and wants and whatever don't represent who I am today. They may be what I wanted a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, but I think that's why it's so important to have that like continual check-in with yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. I often do it around my birthday, especially, and kind of have that self-reflection of, right, I'm another year older, where am I? Where did I want to be? What do I want to do? What don't I want to do? And you're kind of yeah, building that intention. And then you go and take a massive trip. <laughs> yeah, typically. <laughs> yeah. But I think in you're saying about drugs that kind of worry you of their reduction. I think the other one as well for me is SSRIs. I think this is why so heavily there is this creation of uh, or movement from the pharmaceutical industrial complex into investment into psilocybin or psilocin uh, analog drugs uh, in therapy. Um, and yeah, again, it, it feels that they're obviously, they know that the SSI model is very limited uh, in terms of the efficacy of it. I, I don't quote me on this, but I think I remember reading a meta study that suggested somewhere in the region of 30 to 40% efficacy um, in comparison to something like cannabis, which if you saw uh, a recent I think it was a blog post by a psychiatrist in the UK who proclaimed uh, prescription cannabis is the best tool that he's seen in psychiatry in 20 years. Saying that in one in one one plant he has the ability to treat uh, autism, ADHD, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar disorder, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, um, actually, I, speaking of that, that was something that Mike uh, Mike Barnes mentioned. Mentioned it was. Uh, he did a, uh, a report for us for the courts that said I would um, that I would apply, that I would um, qualify for a prescription, but 
obviously being on um, Universal Credit, there's absolutely no way I could afford one. Uh, he, he turned around and, and said, hey, if you suffer from anxiety, there's really good evidence for that one. So make sure you get that, make sure you put that one down. So obviously I did. <laughs> so it's interesting because we had, uh, I say we, the grand old we here at Simple Life, uh, me, me, myself and I, uh, had Mike on not too long ago. And I asked him the same question I asked him a year ago when I had him on. Does prescription cannabis as an industry worry about psychosis? To which, to which he said, no, not at all. And so then if they're saying that it's one of the best body of evidence they have for the efficacy of cannabis for treatment of conditions is anxiety, and yet they're saying that smoking cannabis illegally makes you anxious, perhaps it's not the cannabis. Perhaps it's being a criminal. Perhaps it's worrying that every siren no, 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 you no, hear, no, every no. blue light you see. No, mate, no, mate, you've got it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that's a strong words. I've got it wrong. Yeah, mate, you're missing the beats. Now, um, and this is something that again got brought up at the, tri the trial. Um, my barrister was talking about how they've seen a, a threefold increase in um, cannabis psychosis over the last so many years. And I turned around and said, No, you haven't. What you've seen is an increase in tobacco psychosis. Because the tobacco has now been linked as a causal factor in psychosis schizophrenia. Now, this is now, again, bringing up Mike Barnes. Me and you had this conversation with him at one of the very first events at Hemp Gardens. Where, going back a few years now, yeah. Um, I asked him then, um, if you look at the very, very basics of what psychosis is, it's a loss of neurons in the hippocampus and amygdala regions of the brain. However, when you ingest cannabis, it it starts a process called neurogenesis, which is the creation of new pathways and neurons in the hippocampus and amygdala areas of the brain. So if cannabis sparks neurogenesis, how can it cause psychosis? And as Mike Barnes, as Mike himself said, we don't know. Now, as, as he said, a few years later, he's now, as you've just said, and the prescription cannabis industry isn't worried about psychosis. Why is that? Because there's no bloody tobacco involved. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So, but the other side of it is the there is a uh, I would argue a palatable uh, argument to be made of the structural consequences of criminalization in terms of. Oh, the, definitely. The, yeah, the, I mean, I, I've, I've, I'll, I'll make no argument beyond that one because I mean. I would not, I can tell you right now, I would never ever work for the government again. And as far as I'm concerned, the police are not on our side in any way, shape, or form. You know, I, I, I will never ever participate in this system in any way, shape, or form again, as far as I'm concerned, because it's disgusting. And the fact that we are, that we all comply with it is I'm finding completely mental. And to think that they want us to pay an extra five percent on our council taxes, <laughs> do one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 mental. I mean, I won't contest. In fact, it's obviously the same argument that I've put forward uh, with the tobacco link. It's around. I mean, the old statistic that I saw was God probably from about twenty ten. Now, uh, it's about seventy seven percent of Europeans mix their cannabis with uh, tobacco. Um, obviously this becomes sort of, it's becoming less prevalent in, uh, the youth. I mean, although you have cultural issues of things like, um, I'm not going to name any brands, but obviously tobacco leaf blunts, uh, it's quite a cultural thing uh -huh. to consume and people forget that there's, there's nicotine within those products. 
Um, obviously, European regulations mean they have to be labeled as such, so that does kind of help. Um, mm. But yeah, it's well, we can see that then if yeah, if you remove criminalization and then you remove tobacco, what we're actually seeing is again, I've mentioned this before, and it's almost counterintuitive, but the gr- best growing data for the consistent efficacy of cannabis is collectively globally in psychiatry. Because again, they've suddenly just flipped the script. There's, some of them are still advocating, and obviously, I would say paid stoolies from the uh, pharmaceutical industrial complex. But there are others that are then suddenly going, "Wait, I've got 20 years of folders here where I've said these people have got cannabis use disorder or cannabis induced psychosis," or and then all of a sudden, I go, "Wait, what if they were self medicating with a medication and looking at it in a different light?" And all of a sudden, going, "Oh shit!" And seeing then that, all right, maybe me prescribing them an antipsychotic and an SSRI wasn't necessary. I mean, the other the other another component to add to this is adulterants. Um, for all, it is still quite rare. We are still seeing spice infiltrating into cannabis marketplaces, especially into the uh, vape industry, uh, where it's you can't see the difference, um, and into novice consumers who are not understanding what cannabis should look like, smell like, act like, feel like, etc. Uh, do you know Do you know who created spice? Well, this is again. It's a. I don't want to say a conspiracy, but because it's true, they did. They were part of it. There were other syntheses, syntheses of cannabinoid compounds in the early part of the twentieth century. But yeah, Pfizer created what became the first yep. popular one, which eventually became a street used drug. Yeah, well, that's right. The company that gives you gives us fake erections also gives us fake weed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's another fake that you can add into that as well. But again, for the the world that we currently <laughs> live in, I'm not going to talk about that. But that's probably a hyper, exactly. hyperbole statement. I don't, I don't mean that. That way, well, I don't know. I, I'll. That was a joke, folks. I'm going to put that on record. I don't fucking know. I, I, I don't partake in that. People are quite happy to know my my feelings on this. I am needle phobic. I do not engage with needles, and I am grateful for the fact that I had such a traumatic experience at the dentist as a kid because it's kept me away from intravenous drug use. I have been tempted, believe me, but it's never like at the, the heights of my my depression and of my destructive tendencies as uh, my late teens and in my early 20s. But it was that that's kind of protected me. Um, but yeah, that's the only reason I make that joke. I have no fucking idea what's going on with this C word narrative right now. It's, it is what it is and I'm leaving it to it. I'm focusing on what I can... Uh, what I can see. I'm making sure I've got. I'm making sure I've got plenty of cannabinoids in my system as preventative measures. Well, this is interesting because obviously, yeah, there's been a couple of studies that have. Uh, the main study actually that came out, interestingly, omitted the major cannabinoid that was used in the study. So, uh, a cannabinoid study came out that they used in vitro. So they used cannabinoids on um, the virus cells. The one that's just recently gone. The word I'm not saying here, folks. Um, and they, they discovered the CBG, CBD, but also THC in this acidic mm-hmm. form uh, binds to um, spike proteins and stops them uh, the co- molecules of that particular virus uh, from from entering the the human body. Um, but yeah, they, admit, sure, they, sure. they admitted THC from it. It wasn't until I actually delved into it, but all of the major outlets across the world that then spoke of this, they put CBG and CBD. They put two major compounds when the study credits THCA, CBDA, CBGA. Yes, because we can't have too much THC. Simple as that. Why? Uh, why, the more, why? The more, t- more THC those plants are producing, the, 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 the better productive they'll be. This is it because THC, you've got to remember the the cannabinoid for all we love cannabis and cannabinoids. 
it wasn't necessarily designed for us. Um, THC, in terms of its evolution process, from looking at its altitude where it grew up in Tibetan Plateau, uh, it was a, it's UV protectant. That's its predominant. The fact that we've then interacted with it for a millennia, and then we somehow have to also share similar uh, receptors, it, it's... I don't know, you can argue whether there's an intelligent design there or whether it's evolutionary... Uh, oh, it's there's got to be some uh, some manner uh, manner of evolution that they because well, it's a, I mean, we were using this plant as food for millennia as well. Yeah, there's there's a very famous quote that every everybody knows in the country connected to it. You know, everybody's seen um, Oliver Twist. Like, please, sir, can I have some more? Gruel was a byproduct of hemp seed production. Mm. You know, so I mean, we were you. I mean, there's even um, there's even uh, studies now that I call uh, reckon manna, which was mentioned in the um, in Exodus in the Bible. Uh, manna is now being um, connected with cannabis. Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise us. Obviously, there is the the narrative or. Well, it's been, I say narrative because it's hard to prove these things. I mean, I'm talking about, I was going to say about Jesus. So it's the fact that Jesus is mentioned in the sentence. Obviously, the, the anointing oils of Jesus that are mentioned in the yeah. Bible, working with the, the cannabosum is, is, is cannabis. But again, I'm not putting any sort of merit into the... There maybe was a guy called Jesus. I'm not, I'm not diminishing Christianity here, but it's, yeah. Whatever you sort of think of that, the historical accounts that were then recorded of that those events would state that, yeah, the cannabis was was in common use at the time. I mean, there's an argument, I've made it on this podcast a few times, um, and would very much like Graham Hancock as a guest in the future to just present it. Mm. If we know that the mechanism, mechanisms through the creation of things like concrete that will eventually petrify over time. What are the geological means for being able to tell the difference between petrified plant materials and, and other mineral formations in a rock? So in other words, did these some of these great monoliths and these... Um, constructs that were created were they carved because this is the argument that's made is they didn't have the math they didn't have the toolage or were they shaped in russian concept um so some of the there is, players actually, mind. actually there is a site you can have a look at um the Alora caves in india is 1,500-year-old hempcrete. It's all, it's all been preserved by um, having hemp in it. E-L-L-O-R-E. Right. <laughs> okay. Is there yes, a new one I'm springing on you again, is it? Yeah, do love it when I have these conversations with you. Yeah, it's in the... Um... Cannabis preserved ancient Indian artwork in the sacred Ellora Caves for 1,500 yeah. years. The, it was a form, yes, they used plaster in the internal uh, spaces and it regulated the humidity and it deterred insects over the, the period of time to protect the artworks inside. Incredible shit, isn't it? So, yeah, um, wow, actually, the, the preservation of that, the image. Yeah. Okay, I'll include a, a link to this as well uh, in the description below, folks, so you can check out this. Um, but yeah, this is something that I definitely want to look at. Because, again, if you, you think of it, if we look at uh, the traditional um, building constructs of the First World Nations, of people that are still quite connected to... Um, 
how would you describe it? I don't want to say ancient times, but sort of prehistory, as it were, mm. um, for the, the hominid evolution of humanity, the mud huts and things like that, of the construct of a hard material with something else that dries over time. The, the notion of us having the intelligence to use this, and then if we were interacting it with many other things anyway, humans used to be incredibly... Um, they use everything, you know what I mean? We we'd incorporate yeah. the use of it. There would, nothing would ever be a waste. We'd have we've got loads of this. Find a use for it. Do you know what I mean? So I think that that kind of intelligence and mechanism, I think that would make more sense. And then the fact that they are constructs that become a I don't know whether it become indistinguishable from from rock or other mineral formations um, over time. I, I don't know the science on that. It's just something that's in my head that I'd, I'd quite like to discuss with someone that maybe knows the answers. You know, yeah, especially somebody like Graham Hancock. Oh yeah, I just like to pick his brain. Anyway, that man is 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 a genius. He's I think he's he's, oh, de he's decades decades ahead of his time. Once we can get hopefully to like a point where it's not like uh, like historical ideology or religious uh, sort of fundamentalism that informs history, that we can actually collectively get together and go right. What do you know from ten years, thousand years ago? You lot, you lot, you lot, and everybody mm. just puts it all in the pile, and we look at it and go. Oh, that doesn't make sense anymore. That doesn't make sense. Oh, you all saw that as well. That must have been a thing. All right, write that down. Do you know what I mean? Because collectively we have the accounts of human history, but it's been so butchered and bastardized by various rises and falls of empires and kings and fucking... The Bible is a perfect allegory for that. It's a, it's a badly translated version of the Sumerian Chronicles, which is something like 7,000 years older than the, than the Bible. I think that there's an argument to be made that most of the major religions are attempts to convey science, attempts to convey experience. Um, so, so uh, like, definitely, it, it, definitely, like, definitely experience. I mean, just look at, the, I mean, the story of Noah, and you you, you compare that to the to the um, the work of Graham Hancock. You know, the the story of the story of of Noah is told in the Sumerian chronicles as the story of Gilgamesh, mm -hmm. which is the story of the the great flood, which is the the, the survivors of the younger Dryas impacts. Yeah, which is where then some of the other uh, theorists on this like to come in with sort of Atlantis and, and other such sort of yeah. concepts. I mean, there is so much within again the difference between something in our history that is a conspiracy or a fantasy and something that happened is consensus. Yeah. And that's, I, that's, um, that's literally, it's whether you get enough people agree. Could that have happened? Yeah, probably that happened. Did we saying that happened? Yeah, that happened. All right, cool. That, no, that doesn't happen. That We're saying that one doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Speaking, we got it. Speaking of, speaking of Atlantis, uh, have you watched the latest, uh, I'm sorry, well, not the latest one. Um, Randall Carlson's recently been on Joe Rogan. And apparently James Cameron has taken a great interest in his and Graham Hancock's works. And Randall Coulson has theorised the position for where Atlantis could have been, and James Cameron wants to do a dive, apparently. Wow. <laughs> I've just got um, South Park. Yeah, where... James Cameron looking, looking for Atlantis based on the work of Randall Coulson and Graham Hancock. Fucking bring that one on. <laughs> Mind, what a peculiar world we live in. Like, there's a there's a South Park episode where the, the collective bar of society is lowered and James Cameron has to go down into the ocean to raise the bar. And, <laughs> and it's just like, 
it's mental that then if he took on that project and they actually found Atlantis and it just kind of rewrote human history, it's mental that that would actually raise the bar in society because then all of a sudden like, really we'd, again, we'd again have hope instead of this narrative of, well, this one race or this one group or this one arbitrary collective group of individuals did X, Y, Z. It's like, no, it's the, everything that is, is the story of everyone that has been. It is, it yeah, is, it is. I, it I, is and it all took place on a tiny little blue dot. Yeah, man. Yeah. And again, it's, I think the wonderful thing of the prevalence of cannabis of psychedelics is that they give us an opportunity to have what the astronauts called the overview effect, which is mm. that when they got into the stratosphere and you turned and you saw everything that ever has been, ever will be, ever could be, everything has ever been for as far as humanity is concerned is there. And you are not currently part of it to have that abstract experience. I think that's why substances like DMT and, and, um, and LSD are very, powerful things to be able to, to allow us to separate from our senses or on the other side to become so synesthetic with them that we experience life in such a detached way from our egos that we understand that kings and, and, and hierarchy and monarchy and, and democracy and everything else are absurdities. There are attempts at us trying to define and refine and confine the divine, the, the, the chaotic nature of, of, the unknown. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I quite, I quite like, I, I quite like the quiet, the chaotic nature of the unknown. I mean, uh, every, <laughs> I find it very strange to deal with people who, who can't deal with change because for me, life changes every day. Uh, it's, <sighs> that's part of the beauty of life. Yeah. I think the, the oh, which version of I'm sorry for the Buddhists out there. One of the schools of Buddhist thought, um, the their their Buddha, because obviously there's a few different interpretations to this. Um, basically said that the the human body is made up of things. I think it's called Galapagos, it's Galapagos, or these particles, these millions of mm. particles, um, and that we accumulate at the start of day and we dissipate at the end of day. And every day we reformulate was in this birth cycle. That every day you have this new day ahead of you in that quite new agey sort of concept, but it is this idea that it, everything is what it is in front of you. Anything that's been previous or in front ahead of you is speculation behind you is we'll change. We'll ch okay. We'll change. We'll change. We'll change with time. <laughs> um, oh, that was creepy. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. And I think that that to me, that when I learned that many years ago was a really like, ah, I get it. So any, I'm carrying the trauma into each day. I'm carrying this. Well, I can't do this today because I couldn't do it yesterday. Do you know what I mean? And this this self-limiting um, prophecy. Yeah, I get that one all too well, right? Especially at the minute. <laughs> yeah. I think that's understandable. Yeah, you better watch your time because you've got a call to be taken shortly. Indeed, indeed. For, forever sitting in front of this bloody screen. Uh, I suppose I'm with, it's, with, it's what happens when you get gassed, man. You cannot help yourself. I know I'm seemingly making a career out of talking shit. Um, but yeah, at least uh, uh, some of you find people out there are listening. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah. Seems to be people enjoy it. So <laughs> as long as there is an audience and an appetite, or even if there isn't, to be honest, I'll, I'll be sort having these conversations forever. Because even if we do get the ultimate win and, and things actually really meaningfully change, we'll be set with a whole new version of challenges and and corruptions and I've got no doubt because the powers of Bacon have people like me and you raising ourselves because they like to be in they've got the lorded over us we have to be serfs yeah I think that's I'm slowly realising what my ultimate fight is in life it's for class mobility 
or at least mm-hmm. or is it the least but ideally an erosion of, of classism and i think that's where my fight is it just happens to manifest in drugs right now um you know, we, we all want that star trek future but it's the powers that be don't want us to have it yeah well i think everything that we've kind of discussed with cannabis is a technology and a resource i mean it's before even thinking of the application of mycelium and mushrooms and and other so as you've said as you've said before me all of this lot it's it's all capitalist industries but it's got so much benefit for all it's got a socialist agenda yeah i mean it's frustrating because the capitalist imperative is is kind of fabricated on scarcity and yeah. cannabis unrestrained is antithetical to scarcity it is abundance exactly capacity it's a, a resource that can create abundance in a system of debt-based scarcity is an aberration not only is an aberration it is actively a threat it is a, exactly. a form of as they would consider terrorism and a threat yeah threat to their economy exactly yeah. this, is, this is why it's, it's uh, the, the economic argument uh, it's a part of it is economic terrorism yeah it really is it really is so it's yeah economic ter- terrorism and social control and uh yeah i think i'm going to ask you the last question, hopefully, so we don't leave this on too much of a downer. Because, I mean, there's still, let's see, there's still hope to be found in all of this, I suppose, folks, that awareness is the first step towards any change. And I think I am grateful for how open you have been uh, with your, you going through this process, not just to myself, but to the, the public at large and helping inform others that for all the system is skewed, the, there's still potentially ways that we can challenge this. Yeah, and I, I still think that the best way to do that is to go after the coppers personally through civil cases, go and take the O.J. Simpson approach to to justice. I think it's the only way we're going to do it. Yeah, well, uh, fingers crossed for that. But again, again that, that, um, I will say that I'm, I'm a little bit pessimistic about that as well, considering how badly the system is fixed already. Yeah, it does seem that if you were to design a system to prevent people from challenging the laws, you wouldn't allow there to be a mechanism for people to challenge said laws. And if then you could put together a civil claim, it's then whether anybody would represent it as to whether then the institutions themselves would allow it to, to come to trial. And that is, I think is an issue here. There's also then, how large, uh, I, I, how large of a bullseye you could potentially paint on your back by doing so? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember I told you, I remember uh, Phil Berryman commented on one of posts not so long ago about how he had put um, put this case over to his barrister, and his barrister hadn't. Uh, from the sounds of it, I, I think he recognises the case, recognises that there is a case there, but didn't come back to him. Well, this is it. I think that. A lot of people now in different law firms around the country and people in law as a profession are starting to then look at the next level of this. That Okay, what happens if then cannabis is suddenly lawful in the UK, if then there's no none of these possession charges, these cultivation, and there's a lot of law firms that have basically made a career out of um, careers out of just charge, uh, charging drug charges, defending people on drug charges. You know, it's... Yeah, they've all made themselves part of that criminal conspiracy. Yeah, but the Criminal Act 1977 says you don't have to be, you don't have to knowingly be part of a conspiracy to be considered part of a conspiracy. But this is and we know this is a, a, a criminal conspiracy of fraud and terrorism. So they, at some point, they're going to have to 
they're, they're going to be held accountable by the people that they've helped criminalise. I'd like to think so. And then if, if it was then done in, in the right way, they would then go after the prosecution services. They would then go after people in power. But this is the argument that if police were actually here to serve justice blindly, they would be in raiding parliament. Yeah. So just that, yeah, it's hard not to be pessimistic about the, the chances of, of developing such a case and being able to actually try it in a way that would lead to a positive outcome and set a precedent for a route to um, just basically put the officers on blast to be aware that you are legally responsible for your actions when making arrests. No, they are. No, the Police Federation have already said that each and every officer is an independent legal entity. Wonder how many of the officers know that when they're they're running around all gung ho, playing good games. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, um, let's wrap this up because, like you say, I've got a, another call. Um, final question: They ask really everyone, "What does the future hold for you?" It's been a year since we spoke to you. We've kind of caught up on that. Where do you think we'll be when we speak to you next year? I have no idea. Um... Honestly, I don't know where I fit into all of this right now, and I don't know what to do with it all. So I'm just going to go with the flow and see what happens. Yeah, I think that's a healthy approach to it. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. No, I appreciate that. Well, like I said, I really appreciate um, you taking the time and uh, yeah, catching us up with everything that's happened. It is, <clears throat> like I said, deeply frustrating that the outcome went the way it did in terms of them forcing you into a guilty plea. But I think the, um, what the hell is it called? The punishment, I guess, is is the best outcome that could have been. No, pretty much. I, mean, I, I think I'd be, I've done all right to get like, you know, get a suspended and only 156 quid for, um, for 75 plants, but still at the same time, to know beyond a reasonable doubt that I've been defrauded and terrorised and all the rest of it is it's angering, it's frustrating, it's I'm sure sure there's there's plenty of people listening to this who will know exactly how it feels Yeah, unfortunately so and I think that's why it's so important that we share these narratives and these stories and these these conversations and we try and find truth, we try away, we know the truth we try and find ways to project that truth and show that truth to the people that can actually make some fucking change because something has to change they can't it has, come, it has to come down to the coppers they have to simply start doing the job yeah man instead of just following orders do the job that's a big call to arms uh, as it were but a call to action rather so I, I don't know I do hope that it doesn't fall on deaf ears but I highly doubt we've got I, any I police officers will, within but... my listening ranks uh, but yeah, <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's, that's 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 my hope as well. Uh, to be fair, is that in some small way we can nullify the law. If the law can't change because the politics is corrupt, we can at least try and figure out how to get the police to understand the truth. And the truth is that they're but you're just following orders and you're not doing your bloody job. It's as simple as that. Indeed, indeed. So and, uh, and not only that, is are all getting stitched up because in, in 2014. Um, David Cameron, George Osborne put the black market for sex and drugs uh, on uh, the figures for the economy. They valued that market at £10 billion. Obviously, the people who work in those black markets don't pay, don't pay taxes. So what they did was to treat those taxes like car insurance payments. 
everybody accepts that we pay a certain amount of our car insurance payments for uninsured drivers. Now everybody pays a certain amount of their income taxes to pay for taxes missed from the black market, which includes the police, whose council taxes are about just about to go up for five percent to pay for cuts to the police. So they're contributing towards their own pay cut to go out and repress a multi-billion pound industry that each and every one of them are paying uh, income taxes for. Almost makes you feel sorry for them. Yeah, I mean, they're also then destabilizing economies, local communities, etc. It's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to state, but again, unfortunately, a lot of people are victims of this, even the oppressors to some extent. So yeah, I think that's a, a good point to end on. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Trev. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, obviously, I, I will see you soon. Obviously, we'll get you back on the podcast uh, before too long, although it probably will end up being another 12 months, how fast time is flying by. But I do hope that a lot has changed and that you have found um, found a comfortable place within the, the industry that you're, you're happy with and you can see a future. Thank you very much, man. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I'll speak to you very soon. Uh, Folks, if you've enjoyed this, please do check us out on patreon.com uh, forward slash simple life where you can help keep the lights on on this little project as well as getting exclusive access to uh, blogs and uh, episodes of the podcast. Check us out on all social media platform at Simple Life. Uh, I'll be back next week with the legend that is Mr. Tommy Chong. Then we've got uh, Dana Larson coming up. And I've just confirmed, but I'm not going to announce who it is, a sitting MP. Ooh, this will be a quite an interesting conversation I'll be having in early April. So do check it out. Uh, please do like, share, subscribe, uh, rate on various podcast, podcast platforms. And yeah, just generally help me grow the show if you've enjoyed this. Thanks, folks. Peace and love. Check you next week.